0: I'm James Zug and this is Outside the Glass. Outside the Glass is brought to you by squashproshop.com, our source for equipment for racquetball, badminton, paddle tennis, and of course squash. They carry a great selection of squash equipment from all the top manufacturers at the lowest prices. Rackets and shoes, balls and bags, goggles and grips, they've got it all and they offer fast and free shipping on orders over $25. For the best selection, prices, and service on the internet, visit SquashProShop.com. This month we have a special conversation with Steve Line. Steve's been covering the game of squash for 36 years. He's uh, traveled all around the world and photographed some of the most iconic images in our game. He has an incredible knowledge of, of the game and um, you know, where it's been and, and where it's going, so enjoy. Tell us about your, your photography before you ever went near a squash court. Um, well,
1: really what happened <clears throat> is that I was uh, university where? Um, studying geology, got to the third year of university, and as um,
0: which one? Where were? we?
1: Exeter University, South okay, Southwest England. Yeah. Studying geology, so nothing to do with photography, yeah. and then were you thinking of becoming a geologist? Um, I was always told that if you want to go to degree level, then then do a degree what you enjoy most doing at A level, which yeah. were at that time was geology. Uh, I probably never saw myself as a a field geologist or specializing in seismic geology or anything like that. I just enjoyed doing geology and it's a great degree to do. But then in the third year, the lecturers would come round and ask you, Oh, you know, what What are you going to be doing? You apply for any interviews and so on and so forth. And I said, well, you know, I'm just leaving a while. This might take a gap year or, you know, just fudging it. And there's this one guy, uh, in our group called Daniel Lazar, L-A-Z-A-R, who I overheard saying to a group of his mates, Oh, I've, think I'll try photography. Just out of the blue. And and I just overheard this. I thought, Oh, that sounds quite good. And I quite like the idea of being self employed. So that was my get out. That was I'd say, well I'm gonna try photography
0: for a So year if you hadn't race. heard that conversation, is it possible that you would have Very possible. been studying rocks and, yeah. you know, climbing around the Grand Canyon Very or, possible. You know, I know, it's weird.
1: How these things happen. So I thought, Well, yeah, I'll give it a go. What, so what year is this? This is, so I graduated in 1980. So then... So
0: did you go buy a camera? Like, what was the next step?
1: Yeah, so I had a a small inheritance from my granddad. So I bought some photographic equipment, uh, a couple of bodies and about three lenses, flash gun.
0: So you bought a lot of stuff straight out. Yeah. You you didn't just get a little insta, you know, a little thing and sort of... No, I thought,
1: if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it properly. So I got professional gear. I got Canon gear, which I still use. Um, and I thought well I'll just try anything and everything so I I worked for a wedding photographer which was in Exeter or or no this is back now so I'm now I'm back home so I had uh, I lived in Shoreham by Sea which is on the south coast which is near Brighton but I that's where my parents were from and I after university I lived in rented accommodation with three nurses for the first year after university, which is another story. (laughs) But uh, uh, I thought, well, yeah, let's just give it a go. So I I worked um, for this wedding photographer uh, who taught me a lot about photography, setting up groups, Mm -hmm. and he said the most important thing, forget about the people or subject, just look firstly at the background, secondly at the lighting, Mm. and then think about your subject is absolutely right You know, whenever I'm looking at photographs I think uh, you've got to get the background right because that's going to be a distraction if it's the wrong background lighting if it's outside never have your subject looking into the sun right. always have the sun coming across or from slightly behind and uh, and use a bit of fill-in flash if you've got the capability for doing that but it, that was really useful experience. And then I just photographed as well as weddings on my own. I how, how many
0: weddings did you do in this period? I
1: probably did about 20 weddings, something like that, as assistant and also on my own. So it's quite a responsibility. Yes. So I did about six with Pete Sheed, who is this photographer that I work for, and then did about 14 on my own. But I realized that wedding photography probably wasn't my calling in life when I was doing doing a wedding shoot in Shoreham actually which is where my parents come from and um, you used to use this um, to power the flash a shoulder battery Mm -hmm. shoulder sized battery substantial piece of um, rechargeable battery to power the flash gun because you're taking a lot of flash photographs and I was taking photographs outside in the rain and the the battery strap broke and the battery fell to the ground in the rain the whole thing shorted out Oh. and I was in a panic and uh, I went back to my accommodation tried to find another battery but it was a disaster you know it was a disaster it was sort of if you like beyond my control but I thought mm, no I don't like this anyway I don't know but I, I, I did a lot of I, I worked for a local golf magazine for about three or four years did a lot of traveling around my local area which is good experience as well and then worked. For did work for sailing clubs. Um,
0: Were you taking photographs of, 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 uh, of golf courses or of tournaments? Uh, of
1: tournaments, so local mm-hmm. pros playing in the local tournaments, so I did a lot of that. I did a lot of work for um, Sussex County Cricket Club, which is the local mm-hmm. county mm-hmm. club to me. Mm-hmm. I was their official photographer for a couple of years. Bought a really? big lens, 800mm lens, which you put on a tripod sitting on the boundary doing photographs of that. so And I wow. also did some work for the Times newspaper down in um, Eastbourne, where they had a top ladies' tournament down right. there. So it was, it was going okay. You so know, was there any
0: good. point where you thought, okay, I'm going to stop this and go back to geology or go find another job all entirely? Were they, were, like When did you know, okay, I'm actually now, this is my life's calling?
1: It was always going well enough. Uh, this is before squash it was always going well enough to think yeah there are possibilities here you know as long as you turn out good quality or even decent quality stuff and you're reliable then Mm. people will tend to use you
0: so did the the, the the strap breaking? did the that st- ruin you on weddings? Or that? Did, did yeah, people I never did another iring. wedding. <laughs> never did
1: another wedding after that. That was it. <laughs> did the photos it. come out for that wedding? Um, yeah, it was, I had to use a smaller flash gun and had to take photographs inside, and it was yeah, it was just unfortunate. A combination of it raining and the breaking of the strap was, yeah, I could. There's nothing really I could do, so. I just moved into anything else into, in the, into, <laughs> into the sports yeah. and I love sports as a, as a person I play sports I played squash I played tennis I played golf and I, sports is my life my parents were both good sports people my mm. dad was a good squash player tennis player golfer mum was a good tennis player uh, and I love watching tennis and I love playing it um, so as well and I love playing squash I was a decent club player right. um, so so what happened, it was in 1982, there was this tournament was taking place, I just saw it in the local paper, it was taking place at Chichester squash club, hmm. which is about 20 miles away from where I lived. And I thought, well, I'll just go down there and just, you
0: know. Not with, your, just, not with your cameras? Yeah,
1: I went down there with my camera. I phoned up the club secretary and just said, you know, I'm a freelance photographer, right. can I come down and take, take some photographs? She sounded a little surprised he said, Well, yes, yeah, we haven't had people coming down <laughs> taking photographs here for ages. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, well, okay, okay. So I went to a reception and I uh, went and saw the receptionist and yeah. I said, I'm Steve Lyon. I phoned up earlier about uh, taking the photographs here. And she said, Oh, yes. And she said, Yeah, the camera pit you have to access through the groundsman's hut, which is bolted to the outside of the club wall. I thought, oh, Okay. <laughs> So she gave me the key and I went around the outside of the building and I saw this hut and I thought, well, this must be what she means. So I saw the padlock, undid the padlock, opened it up and I saw inside lawnmowers, rakes, <laughs> bags of compost. And I thought, what is going on here? But in down on the far right, I saw this sort of glimmer of light. And I thought, well, that must be probably where the squash court is. So I moved all the equipment outside of the shed moved in and took this board off, which was sort of guarding a window. And it was like taking, if you like, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant away. Suddenly this blinding light appeared. And I thought, Jesus, this is, this is impressive. And I sat down and I was there looking at players playing front on straight towards me instead of actually, as Probably everybody high. normally is, yeah. behind the, the back wall or the balcony.
0: Where, where on the front wall were you? Were you so at, like in, where the tin is? Where the, in the middle of the tin. In the middle of the tin is where you across, were, yeah. yeah. And it, and could it's, you sit or did you have to lie down?
1: You you could sit. <coughs> it actually had, had been fairly well thought out, although not very well used. <laughs> apparently. But apparently, that's right. And just sitting there, and I thought, right, it feels like you're you're in there, in the court with the players. You're just so close to the action. You saw these guys coming towards you at you know, breakneck speeds hitting the ball at 100 miles an hour with a thwack of the, wall, the ball on the wall above your head and I thought this is this is okay this is better than you know other sports which I cover where you have to be somewhere away on the well, boundary with the telephoto you're, lenses you're,
0: you're hundreds of yards yeah, away yeah that's sometimes.
1: right exactly and here you're right in with the action was
0: it a three wall glass with a plaster front wall or, mm, it or was
1: no it was a three plaster wall court just with a glass just back just glass back wall yeah and this is the main court at Chichester which I played on quite a lot myself so mm. it's... Uh, but you had no idea uh, there was a... <laughs> no, I no, had no idea there was a top international tournament there and, and Jahanga was playing there, Gamal Awad was playing there. So was Hunt this the was first round or what, what... I went I think for the... I think it was the second or the third round of mm-hmm. the Patrick International Squash Festival in
0: 1982. And you saw those guys that night? You saw yeah. some of the top guys? And,
1: uh, yeah and I photographed Jahanga playing Gamal Awad mm. and got a really good shot from that and I thought this is also different insofar as you know. I had photographed tennis. Uh, I'd done a bit of badminton, and I thought, um, hmm, you've got two guys on the same side of the net, if you like, right. interacting with each other. So it's different. As well as getting action shots of them hitting the ball, you've got the 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 interplay, interplay between yeah. those two guys, which really adds to the drama. So right. I thought this is this is good. I liked it. I liked it, and I I sent photographs off to the only magazine that was around at the time, Squash Player International, based in Brighton, which is where I was living at the time. Uh, Had a couple of photographs used, thought nothing of it. Did they pay (laughs) you? The guy who ran it was a little bit slow, shall we say, in payments. But uh, I thought, well, Well, it's just just one of those things, I had fun. And then the following year, 1983, I saw the tournament was coming up again. So Um, nothing
0: happened in between?
1: No, nothing at all, that's the only tournament I did. Um, then I carried on doing what I'd been doing with golf and yeah. cricket and etc. Right, right. And then 1983 came about, and I thought I'd give the editor. Uh, Same
0: John, who was the editor then?
1: The, what happened is that uh, it was owned by this gentleman called Alex Angeli in Brighton, mm. uh, and then he got into trouble, so the magazine was taken over by a company up in Epsom in mm. Surrey, mm. and they'd appointed a new editor. Called Larry Halpin. Oh, okay, Larry. Yeah, and I phoned up the magazine and spoke to the secretary in Epsom, and he put me through to uh, Larry. And I said, I'm thinking you're going along to the squash festival in you know in Chichester again. Do you need any photographs? And so we had a bit of a chat. He's a very sort of uh, eloquent, humorous guy. Um, uh, we got on well. Uh, he said, well, if you're going, can you take a front cover of Dean Williams, who was a top Australian player at the time, and his wife outside the Festival Theatre? So I thought, yeah, OK, great. So I did that, sent photographs off, sent some photographs from the uh, the uh, tournament off as well. And then Larry gave me a call about uh, a couple of months later saying, we like your work, Steve, can you come up to the British Open in Derby? Mm-hmm. This is 1983, and cover the tournament for squash player. Which just is to what get I back did. to
0: the, the tournament again, the, you were there the night of the of the two hour and forty six yeah. minute. That was
1: 1983, right? So. so,
0: were you what 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 do you remember from that match? Were you just in the in the back in the in the groundskeeper's hut, whatever it was, you know? No. So what
1: happened at the international squash court? festival? is that the early rounds both in 82 and in 83 mm. the earlier rounds took place at the squash club because it's an ideal setting really yeah. for a top tournament right at squash club there and then literally 100 yards away you had the festival theater mm. chichester festival theater right which had a good stage which is where they put the squash court on and then you had the the crowd in the auditorium washing the squash mm-hmm. so the quarterfinals onwards was staged in
0: a proper in yeah, a
1: proper auditorium portable,
0: yeah and it is, it is well done and well, now was that yeah. three wall glass or all, all glass that
1: was at this time it was still Perspex yeah and right. uh, they were still playing with a black ball they weren't playing with a white ball and I was photographing from so the front but the audience were looking at the front of the court and to an extent the sides of the court as well mm-hmm. they weren't looking through the back wall and because it was a black wall and, wait wait so
0: the court was the, the front wall was facing the audience yeah the front wall facing so the audience. You, were, you had your back to the audience. I had the back to the audience. That's right. So, but it was a four wall. It was all clear. It's a four wall yeah, perspective
1: court. But because it was on the stage, and obviously it was dark in the background yes. beyond the stage where the court was, they had to, and using a black ball, they obviously had to show the black ball up somehow. So what they did is they draped these two huge white sheets <laughs> over behind the back wall of the court, so everybody could see the black ball against the white sheet. And the two referees uh, were sitting up. on top of the back wall. Yeah, right. So. Um, so
0: that must have been horrible to photograph.
1: It was very well black and white. I mean, it was, there was very little colour in the photographs at all. The, the perspex walls were grey. Mm. So yeah, it was. It wasn't great photographically, and but this is just at the stage that the demountable court was yeah, coming into being that's right
0: they were just figuring it out they're figuring it out
1: and uh 1982 was the i think the first year they had a perspex court and that right. was up in leicester right and, and 1983 and they had one in Chichester in 82 where actually this is going back a year so mm. the only way of photographing that was to go up into the gods above the court and look down into the court. There was actually no camera window to take photographs through in 82, but in 83, as I said, were, we were just sitting um, behind the front wall mm. uh, with the audience behind taking photographs. And
0: were you wearing all black? Like, did I you was see? wearing all black, yeah. So you had your uniform. Yeah, I you had your uniform, yeah, down, had your down, uniform.
1: even though that did cause a slight problem because the players was, were wearing, a, sorry, were playing with a black ball, so the, the ball would, would disappear yeah, when, it's, you know, when it yet. comes across your clothing. But so we, were, we were told to wear black clothing, so we did. Um, did you own a lot of black clothing back then? Yeah, <laughs> I did, yes. Because yes. you do now. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm known for the man in black, yes. But, um, yeah, so 1983. <clears throat> so you
0: went up to, to Derby.
1: Yeah, so, but 1983 so, was that. Oh, right, Oh well, yeah, back to the match. So, that's so like 2 hours, 46 minutes of Jahangir playing Gamal Awad. And my memory of that is that most people stayed for about the first 40 minutes. And of then, the first game. Of you know, the first game and then went to the bar. Because it was just, um, it, at the, in those days it was a very attritional game. Yeah. And Gamal Awad was, was coached by Jonah Barrington. And Jonah said to Gamal, if you keep your hanger on court for over two hours, you stand a chance of beating him. And, that's, and Gamal Awad was known as a grasshopper. Yep. so the way he bounced around the court. And he was an incredibly fit Egyptian. And he's he was determined to keep Jahangir on court for for over two hours, which is what he did, but it was a very, very boring and mundane sort of uh, style of play. And Jahangir won it 3-1, but it was right. two hours and 46 minutes worth. And yeah. then Jahangir played Gamal uh, in really the British open, open in Derby in the final yeah. and had vowed after that match in Chichester, Never to let a player do that to him again, and he absolutely cut into ribbons and beat Gamal in less than an hour, I think it was, and that was Yenda Gamal Nawad really as a that's player right. that's right he shot his ball. But uh, right. so yeah, so I covered that tournament, and um,
0: so you, uh, you did you send your photographs anywhere else or just to at that time player?
1: there was really only squash players the only magazine. Um, so the SRA in England had their own magazine. I think I sent some photographs into there as well and I think one or two were used there as and,
0: well. And and the the press, you know, the, the, the mainstream sports page they weren't taking
1: the, well there were a lot of there were a lot of papers around at the time. Yeah. And and each paper so the Times this is in the UK, but the Times would have their own squash correspondent, Rex Bellamy. Yep. yep. Uh, the Telegraph would have Dickie Rutniger. Uh, The Mail would have Richard Eaton, and he also covered The Guardian. So a lot of the main national papers in the UK actually had their own.
0: But no photographs?
1: But very few photographs. And if they wanted a photograph, they would send their own man down from London, which obviously proved to be expensive. So over the years, uh, I did manage to get a few photographs in the national papers. There was a lot more coverage in the national papers in those days, in the 80s and early 90s. I remember Colin McQuillan used to have previews of the British Open and the Times newspaper which took up about half a page of one of the sports pages in the Times newspaper incredible and now you're lucky to you get results in right. it's just covered by football but it was a really interesting time because uh, the Perspex Court obviously had sort of problems insofar as visibility was concerned so what happened is that there was this um brilliant engineer called Roland Hill who was based in northwest of England who came up with an idea of how can you make the perspex one way viewable so in mm. other words spectators could see in but the players couldn't see out right. and he came up with this idea of contravision uh, in I think it was 82 or 83 and that was a material that had uh, dots on so, right. And the dots on the outside facing the audience were black and on the inside were light grey at that time when you're using a black <coughs> ball. And it meant that the players couldn't see out but the spectators could see in. And uh, he developed this idea, ContraVision, it became, he then thought, well, what about having coloured ContraVision and using a white ball? And that happened in 84 and obviously been the, the uh, staple ever yeah, since. But Roland Hill then used this ContraVision idea uh, for other commercial purposes, because I met him in Boston in the late 80s. We were just walking down the street in Boston, and I just, I came across him, and I said, Roland, what are you doing out here? And uh, he says, Steve, I'll take you to lunch and uh, tell you what's been going on. So he said he was having problems guarding his patent on Mm. this ContraVision idea, and I said, yeah, you're right, Roland, this has got enormous potential. He said, yeah, right, Steve. You know, we can coke buildings right. with this material whereby the people inside working can can see out, but people outside are seeing these massive adverts or the, the potential is enormous, putting it on coaches and so on and so forth. And so it developed. He, he splintered away from his uh, parent company and set up a company called Contribution, And it's still going, and it is the leading uh, brand of one-way vision material in the world. And they specialise in um, using this material on buses, buildings, uh, wherever there's glass. There's a there's a um, possibility of using contravision.
0: And it all came from squash.
1: And it all came from squash. (coughs) If it hadn't have been for squash and this necessity for players to see out, uh, players not to see out, but spectators Mm. to see in. ContraVision would never have happened, which is an extraordinary thing. And now it's a global business away from squash. Mm. Amazing development, absolutely amazing. And then what happened is that the the ContraVision material, which Mm. was like a self-adhesive material, which is coated onto the inside of the Perspex, was always tricky to put on. You tended to get bubbles in the ContraVision, and it's a little bit difficult to line up properly. So then they came, and then glass courts came on the scene in sort of the late 80s, and they impregnated the dots into the glass, and that's what's happened ever since. But the whole idea of contribution came from Roland Hill. So it wasn't for Roland; we wouldn't be sitting here at the US Open watching a four-sided glass court with spectators around there, all four sides. Interesting story, very Mm -hmm. interesting story.
0: So when you went to the British Open, what was that like? That first year?
1: I loved it. I loved it. Um, the thing I loved about it was, as well as doing the action, I just loved the, the emotional side of the reactions of the players. And that's what I thought you, know, you can get some good action shots. But mm. the, at that time, there were certainly some emotional players, certainly in the ladies with Angela Smith and Lisa Opie and Martine Lemoyne, and the quite emotional players. And they'd show their emotions on the court, and I'd go round the back or maybe through the sides and uh, photographed this. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is good. And you're right up close and personal and you're seeing into what they're really feeling. Right. And that really comes across in, I love it when it comes across in the photographs. I love great action shots, but I do love emotion. And as they say, pictures should tell a story if they yeah. can. Right. And by showing the disappointment, anger, disbelief, uh, pleasure, joy, it, it just comes across in photographs. And yeah. that one split second, can just tell a thousand words as right, they say it just right. tells a story just there and then. so I, I I really enjoyed it I enjoyed the I enjoyed the setup with the squash there's some good guys in the press there's good guys in the organisers Andrew Shelley there he's working for her, uh, SRA yep. as they were called at the time yep. and uh, yeah you No know other photographers right <clears> there were at the time there were two other photographers but there were both that's Tim Pike and Robin Ely Jones and they're both full-time teachers so they couldn't they could only basically go to tournaments at weekends and you tend to have presentations taking place during the week so you know i tended to be the only guy there for the finals and the presentations so because the people, finals were on a monday night or something yeah like they were on a monday night mm-hmm. so they people tended to come to me for the photographs so
0: so um, after that first british open in 83 yeah you got locked into squash. I got locked into squash because everybody said, "Oh, this is great. We have a guy here who's good." Like that's right. How nice. That's there right. There never had been.
1: No, there was never anybody who'd ever worked regularly. who was regularly for squash who was who was keen enough to attend every tournament that was that was going. And a lot of the tournaments at that time were based in the UK. There was yeah. South of England Europe, Open, yeah. North of England yeah. Open, Stockton Open. So there are a half a dozen major tournaments, and I go to these tournaments and supply. Squash Player, and then another magazine started up in the UK called Squash World, who had a sister magazine, famous sister magazine called Tennis World.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: so I started working for them as well, and then also uh, the SRA started producing their magazine in earnest um, called, uh, I think it was called Squash News. In so I was working in, in for in three magazines. To their and they had a great annual, <clears> a yeah. great annual, which uh, Larry Halpin edited and put together so there's a lot of work involved with that certainly for Larry and certainly for myself as well but we worked as a team and produced yeah a cracking year but full of you know what happened throughout the year for every county put all the results of all the major tournaments in uh, as well as doing reports on the tournaments and photographs so it was a great collectors piece and summed up the, right. all the years action right but and then the sport started to grow in Europe and and I, the first tournament I went to was actually the World Championships in Toulouse in 1986, which is when Jahanga lost his five-and-a-half-year right. unbeaten run right. to Ross Norman. So it was good timing as far as I was concerned. That's right. And um, What was that tournament like? It was a great tournament. It, was, it took place at the Palais de Sport in Toulouse, which was this massive arena in the center of Toulouse.
0: Up but, on a stage or...?
1: Uh, no, it was in the centre of the arena yeah. and the seating was around all... Well, it was around three sides. Um, but it had a great atmosphere and it was packed. And the French do lay on very good tournaments. They yeah. do do it very, very very well. They presented it well. There was a good MC. There's a woman who was dressed up. And the first... It was like a boxing ring. She would come on at the end of the first first round and show um, Jahanga 1, Chris Dittmar nil, and she'd parade around the court. And the first like the first day, she'd be wearing about 16 layers of clothing. And then uh, every day, she'd take off a couple of layers of clothing until it got to the final, and she was wearing this fantastic pink, pink leotard and getting wolf whistles from the crowd. But just great entertainment, yeah. great entertainment. And, and you know the crowd loved it. And it's...
0: Uh,
1: yeah, Palais de Sport was yeah uh, really well presented in the middle of a food market, so it was um, so we got well fed as well so it's, uh, <laughs> and then there are a lot of tournaments um around Europe started taking place in the late eighties early nineties so there yep. was a spanish open Italian open there are right. three tournaments in Germany right two in France and i ten- I went to a lot of these so it it just grew i was, it's one of those classic sort of cliche Type things where I was really in the right place at the right time at That's the start right. of the involvement of the game, yeah. so far well, as far as well, and having the
0: portable courts. I yeah, mean, absolutely. You know, five years earlier, if you had been five years older, starting out in photography and yeah. oh, I like squash and going to it, was a, it was a completely different tournament. Yeah, and, the, and yeah. to be a photographer in the mid 70s would have yeah. been a, a real struggle to yeah. make money, yeah, and and there weren't nearly as many events, and yeah. and and actually to do the job, like. Yeah. There was no glass... No, you know, there's maybe, no four-sided perspex or glass you courts. Really You'd stride. be photographing
1: through glass packs or glass-back courts or, glass yeah, or occasionally or, through windows in yeah. tins. But it's very hit and miss. And commercially, it wasn't a go-ahead sport at, the, at that time. Not at in all. the 70s. No. Not in the 70s. But come the 80s, that you know, squash has probably gone to more extremes to try and get its sport on TV than any other sport. Mm. around I would think they've tried so many things because at yeah. the time the t- quality of the TV was poor right. uh, so the ball wouldn't show up so what could they do so they came up with ideas of uh, flooding the court with a, with these bright lights and then impregnated into the ball with these bits of right. uh, perspex right. which will reflect back into the lights right. which is where the camera was as well and it would will, will be shown up as glowing around the court and there's this Apparently they're all handmade by this dentist in Leicester, who'd drill out these holes in a in a squash ball to half the level, half the depth of the rubber, and then impregnate the, the perspex into the. And they had about oh, it must be thirty or forty little bits of perspex in the ball, and and it sort of worked but it, the problem was obviously anybody looking through the front wall and photographers included would be blinded by these so were massive you, lights were
0: you getting blinded
1: absolutely blinded yeah it's diabolical from from my point of view it, it just restricted everything so and wow. um, they so that really wasn't a long-term long-term solution um they also tried coating the ball with a uh, with a substance which would iridess in ultraviolet light, and they tr- and they tested it out on courts in England with um, mm. UV lighting in place of normal court lighting, mm-hmm. and it worked a treat, absolutely fantastic. I was there for the trials, and they said this is fantastic. Come to the monitor, you can see the ball glowing with the iridescence, and you thought oh, this is fantastic. And they tried it in 1989 World Open in Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were there for the setup and the first practice and uh, the guys from the TV said to any of the press oh come into the truck and you know, have a look at this this looks absolutely fantastic so we all went into the truck and sort of saw this and there are two guys knocking the ball around on the court and we thought this is fantastic the ball's glowing it's so clear it's brilliant hold on a minute where's the ball gone? after about 30 seconds it, the, the ball had disappeared
0: because it wore off
1: and it wore off, and the reason it wore off is because the court that was used in the 1989 World Open was the only court like it before or since, used for its contribution effect, instead of the, the glass, instead of the colored dots, it used very narrow metal strips coated on the inside of the walls. A very, very narrow and slightly raised away from the uh, the wall of the court so what happened every time the ball struck the the wall a little bit of the iridescent material was taken off so after striking the wall for about 30 times there was no coating left back on the on the on the ball so you couldn't see the ball so it was unfortunate oh, and they were really unfortunate because they had invested a lot of time and expense in doing this and the whole thing was a unfortunate failure so um, wow. but at that time TV camera technology was improving mm. uh, and the ball did start to show up more clearly and now there is no problem at all because the clarity is so superb.
0: But that's off, that's a, a large part because of the way the cameras are so... The, the technology is so Technology has moved on. Right. We, moved we always on. Used to say in the 80s, while well, you know, this is a real problem. it's really hard to to broadcast squash, yeah. the quarter so small, the yeah. ball is so small, moves so fast. Yeah. And that, you know, that's obviously not a problem at all if you have the right technology. Yeah.
1: That's right. But um, Yeah. But
0: it was back then. Yeah. It
1: was it was a it was a was a massive problem. But squash has always been one of those sports where it's fascinating because there's always been somebody coming in trying to take a slice of a very small, admittedly a very small pie, that's right. and trying to promote it and put it on in countries, because they see the the potential with mm-hmm. this four-sided glass court, as it is now, mm. and they think they can just set it up in that's areas right. in front of, you know, the pyramids in yeah. Cairo or in front of, in yep. TOC, at the Grand Central Station. Uh, there were talks about it having in front of the Sydney Opera House in Australia, right. and it's just, that's right. that there's limitless potential, and I think that's, appeals enormously to to promoters who see these, this sport for the first time and think, yeah, wow, this has got a lot of potential. And it's always been like that. There's always been something happening in the game. And I've been involved in, in other sports, certainly table tennis and badminton for a, quite a long period of time, and, and nothing really ever changed in those sports. Mm. It's very static, but in That's squash, right. there's always something happening. Yeah. There's always developments, whether it's on the TV or the way the the game's marketed yeah. or viewed yeah. it's 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 a great game and it's it's a it's a privilege you know to have been involved with it you know as I have for so long i mean it's i'm lucky you know that it's worked out the way it has yeah
0: yeah but, uh, so um, back in the 80s you you and i were talking about this briefly yesterday what were you using to take photographs like how did, like how how has the technology yeah. for you personally changed
1: Well, in the 80s, all print media, uh, bar very little, was black and white. That's newspaper and magazine. Magazines would have front covers in Mm colour, but all of the inside would be in black and white, and newspapers would just be black and white throughout. That's right. So what I would have at the time, this is in the sort of mid-80s, I'd be photographing a sport, and I'd have three camera bodies slung around my shoulder. I'd have a camera body for black and white action, I'd have a camera body with film in to photograph, not that much, but you have to cover yourself. Uh, color action shots in case anything was needed for a, perhaps a small amount of color inside a magazine. And then there'd be uh, on court color, which for presentations. Uh, was, for presentations yeah. yeah. So and you'd actually have on the on the cameras at the time you'd have a little holder on the on the back of the camera where you'd be able to take the the end of the film carton off, and you put it in this little holder so you know what each, what camera was, was holding which, what film.
0: Because you would get confused, right? You'd
1: get confused. You, you know, you'd think, hold you're on, which, what am I going to be shooting? And then you'd have to think, do I need to shoot this in colour or black and white? I know most of it's in black and white, but this guy said I might need some colour shots. There's this commercial outlet that might need some colour transparencies. So you're shooting with black and white negative film. You're shooting with colour transparency or colour positive film, which is notoriously difficult to use. Uh, the the um, the degree of latitude to get the correct exposure was, was minimal. You had to get it spot on. And because the amount of light, even though the squash court looked bright to the naked eye, mm. it is in fact very dull lighting. Even very now? Dull. Even now. Oh, it's very dull. It's so Back now. then it must have been even duller. No, well, right? I have dull? to say, the courts now are probably duller than they were when I first started out in the mid to late 80s. Wow. And it's only because the technology of the camera has actually moved on mm. that you are able to cope with it because you can rate if you like the film mm. obviously it's now digital but you can rate the film at such a high speed mm. that you can compensate for the low light level but the the light level on the squash court is similar to dusk outside that's actually what it is really? that is the light level it doesn't look that way no either. it doesn't look, because the human eye just automatically adjusts and think because it's coming into a darkened room sees a bright squash court. And think, oh, well, that looks bright, but it's mm-hmm. not. It's uh, actually very, very dull. And you're always Dusk. working. Oh. You're always working on the very edge. And I have been, you know, using film and even now with digital, on the very edge of producing usable images. And that that has been what has attracted me, if you like, to to stay with squash, because it's always been a challenge. If I was photographing tennis or golf, you know, you've got your lighting's not outside, a problem. Yeah. Uh, you'd be photographing tennis players you'd think I'd, you know, I'd love to have done tennis in my time but it's uh, you, you know photographing Federer in the first round of the, of the Wimbledon is the same as photographing photographing Federer in the finals you know he's doing great shots but you don't know who he's playing but in squash you always know who he's playing against because the other guy's in the picture Right. so you've always got that incentive every round to do to take the another best, photo. The best shots you can. Well,
0: I've always noticed that you go and you shoot every match, yeah. and you don't you don't just say, Well, I've already got a shot from the previous round. That's right. I yeah. already got one. Yeah. No, you don't because it's a new it's a new opponent. Because it's
1: a new opponent. So every match, you know every match is different because of the opponent they're playing. Mm. So in a way, it makes it, it you know, it makes for more work. You think you've got to, you're reinventing the wheel every match. You're trying every, to do your day. best every match, yeah. Yeah. but it, it gives you an incentive and you know I like I like the challenge I like the challenge of working on the very edge of producing decent quality images I mean going back in the time the times in the 80s when you're when I was photographing with color transparencies I mean you're working the depth of fields of about two feet you're using manual focus lenses there's no water focus and uh, you're, Obviously, the players are moving quick. The ball's moving quick. You have to anticipate the movement, and you have to try and get usable images on very poorly lit courts.
0: Manual focus.
1: Manual focus on, lenses
0: on action photos. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you 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 tend to follow focus manually. So it's uh, some people would pre-focus on an area of the court and wait for the players to get there. But I I couldn't do that because I think, hold on, I'm missing a dynamic shot over there because I'm pre-focused on here. this bit. So I just you'd be continually focusing all day for 12 hours a day on images, on using film that uh, you know you just... Well, at the time, that was what you used. You knew no different, you know. And some the results, you think, yeah, yeah that's good. colour transparency, that's a great image. But now, sometimes I have to scan old colour transparencies with books. Yeah. Perhaps one want to use a photograph to your hangar car in yeah, 1986. Right. And you scan it up on the computer and you think, wow the quality is so poor compared to digital images now. Because obviously you're, with film, you're using chemical uh, development, whereas in digital images, it's all electronic, and so it can be enhanced.
0: You, you would have rolls of film, right? Just like roll so of, rolls how, of how many rolls would you bring to a day?
1: So I would use, during the course of something like the British Open, mm. I'd use probably about 30 rolls of colour transparency. And about similar in black and white um, so um, what would happen at the end of the day so I'll be shooting so say 30 rolls of color, color transparency that's 30 times 36 isn't it so it's um, that's a thousand how many frames is that so 36 times 30 360 so it's about a thousand shots 1, thousand shots in, in a week, in the whole whole of the tournament in color, similar in black and white. So two thousand. So two thousand, and that was a British Open. That was very unusual. That was the biggest. Yeah. That was the biggest. One. Now I'd be shooting about forty-eight thousand during the course of an event.
0: Here at the U.S. Open, you will shoot forty-eight thousand. Forty-eight thousand. Forty-eight, 000 48 000 images. thousand images. That's right. Forty-eight thousand. <laughs> because, so, because you know. Because you can.
1: Because you yes because you net because you know you can um, because you know storage is cheap and you don't want to miss you know anything that, that you you see developing on a court you think that might develop into something a great mm-hmm. shot so you, you just fire off the motor drive and if it doesn't work it doesn't matter but you wouldn't have dreamt of doing that with film because every shot of color transparency film as it was then in the eighties would cost you thirty p. So, because the roll of film plus the developing costs. I mean, the roll of
0: film, the, each shot was about thirty p. Each thirty p. But then, then you
1: you would do contact sheets. You do contact sheets of uh, black and white, and the color transparencies you would just have. Uh, you wouldn't do contact sheets of that because it's too expensive to do. So you just look. you'd have a um, a screen, mm-hmm. a light box to look at all the color transparencies, and then you just pick the ones out and then just mount the ones that were the best shots, right. and then you just file them under player names. So the color transparency was filed like that. The The color, the black and white negs were again just filed in sheets, and you'd have con- contact sheets of each sheet, yeah. and then you'd print from the black and white negs, and I would print. I was gonna say,
0: wait, wait, you, did you have a dark room at your house?
1: So what happened is when I first started out, um, I was living in rented accommodation, as I said. Um, so I thought, well, hold on, I'm going to need to develop my own films and my own black and white prints. Where yeah. am I going to do it? Um, and then I thought, hold on, my parents have got, at the back of their kitchen, they've got a coal bunker. And I thought, well, that could be okay, but is it going to be big enough? So I went round to mum and dad I said, uh, I'm looking for a dark room And I th- I know that, you know, there's no way I could permanently live or use their bathroom. So I said, what about the coal bunker? And they both said, well, don't be so ridiculous, it's too small. And I said, well, I'll just go and have a look at it. So I went outside, opened up the door, and I looked inside, and it was obviously full of coal dust and brick line. And I thought, "It's about three foot square, about eight foot high three foot square. And I thought, I think there's just enough room here to put a, a, a table. table for being <coughs> larger. And uh, three shells, one underneath the other, other, for the three chemicals you use for developing black and white prints: as developer, stop bath, and fixer. With a washing up bowl on a stool underneath, and I cleaned it out. I lined was it the, with cardboard. The, the, was there coal in there, or just no, the coal no, dust? No, 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 no. They were it,
0: they were not using coal anymore. They weren't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was always <laughs> dreading a delivery of coal coming. <laughs> <The weekly laughs> you have cancelled delivery this month, <laughs> have you? <laughs> Um, Was there a chute that came into the... No,
1: they used to just open the door and they they used to have these wooden boards at the front of the coal bunker which they used to pour the coal over the top of Mm. and the boards would keep it in place and then they'd lift up the board and then just Mm. scoop the coal out. But no, my mum and dad had long since stopped using coal. They had converted their coal boiler to a gas boiler. So it was a sort of empty... So it was an empty space, but a very, very small empty space. But it was... uh, but I just hosed it out, cleaned it up, just lined it with hardboard, got electricity through from the kitchen for a safe light, and these red safe lights you used to use, and then power from the enlarger and a fan heater to keep you warm during those cold winter months. And I'd sit in there for hours on end. I developed the films to start with in developing tanks, seven at a time. Seven rolls at a time. Seven rolls at a time. I did that in the kitchen and then would come into the dark room, take them off and just hang them up. To dry it's a perfect area because there's no nobody would ever go there, so there's no chance of dust or people moving around creating dust. You wouldn't want dust sticking itself to your your wet negs. So and then once they dried, I cut them up, put them in sleeves, and then did contact sheets and then did the prints from from the negs.
0: In the in the coal room. In the coal bunker. In the coal bunker. And then you you and then I mean everything is so different now. You would then mail, right? You'd go to the post office. That's right. Then I'd mail mail the prints off to the three magazines I was then working
1: for. And then a bit of demand started coming from abroad. There was Mm -hmm. an Italian magazine uh, based in Milan that I started working for. They were almost entirely colour, so I'd be mailing colour transparencies off. But one of the biggest problems at that time with colour transparencies is that the transparencies, all these colour positives as they're, they're called, Uh, they're originals you can get duplicates done but the quality of the duplicates is never anywhere was never anywhere as good as the originals and you would send the originals so you'd send the originals and say please I need these back because another magazine you know in England needs them or there's a magazine in the US needs them as well so it you spent half your time chasing out colour transparencies to And mailing them all forth and then you mail that's them again right. and Yeah,
0: that's right. And some of them obviously got lost. And they got
1: lost. They wouldn't and they you know, people would say, Oh, I sent them in I the always, post, they yeah. never arrived and it's yeah. So
0: were you going to the post office nearly every oh, day? Yeah, every day. I mean, still, and they you knew put, you, right? Yeah.
1: They knew me very well and everything was done, you know, in recorded delivery or, you know, registered post, yeah, right. special delivery, mainly abroad. Yes. Were you mailing
0: them in uh, envelopes like a uh, Manila, like larger ones with yeah, cardboard large, yeah, to, to yeah, keep yeah, it from bending? Yeah, that's
1: right. Please do not bend right. on the outside, and then you put an extra cardboard layer inside. if we got color transparencies to pad them out. So, um, yes. And when you're, you when like I did work for the the Times newspaper when I was covering that tournament down in Eastbourne, what would happen then is you. would you, this is still in the days of film, mm. so you'd, take the, you'd probably take three rolls of film, and then you'd go down the railway station, mm-hmm. and then you'd send the photographs, or the rolls of film, sorry, Straight, up by yeah. a red star, it was called as a parcel service offered by British Rail at the time, mm-hmm. and that would then arrive in Victoria, and those rolls of film were picked up by a bike sent from the newspaper. And he'd bike the them he'd bike them to the offices. That's right, and they'd bike them back and to they the would, offices. They would pre- they would, and then uh, you'd be checking them. that the bike, you know, you'd you order the bike, and then you check that the bike was there, and then you check with the picture editor that you'd receive the films. And then eventually once you re- they have receive the films, you breathe a sigh of relief and think, Phew. And then you think, oh, wonder if they're going to use anything the following day. And then you'd see the Times newspaper the following day, and you think, oh, that's a great shot With you know, the Would they mail them back to you? No, no, because they keep they keep all the films. That's so you, part of the it's so their, They right. they own the films. You know, you're just being paid for the a day rate for for covering the event. So yeah, you'd never see the films again. Although you could obviously, whilst you're at the event, use your own films, which you could keep after you've done the work for the Times newspaper. But um, yes, it's uh, extraordinary. But that was the way it was. You didn't think anything different of it. You know, it's uh,
0: so the the key question for me always is. You're taking these photographs with film, and you have no idea no. if it's good. No. You have no idea if you've just gotten an incredible photograph, or you've missed something that you knew was mm. amazing, and you, you know. Mm. What you, you, you just don't know what you get no. so how many times were you in the coal bunker <laughs> looking at something going oh my god, oh, god. this well, is amazing well, or like that, oh i can't believe i missed it like, that was
1: a thrill that was a thrill of you know working with film mm. was, you, you obviously had a gut instinct over a number of years as a photographer as to whether you've actually caught that particular moment which mm. you thought at the time was special right but you're never quite sure you know you you know, you just especially you with rely, manual focus, with manual focus lenses, especially in a depth of field of about two feet, where a player's running at you know 15 miles an hour through that, you need to be uh, yeah, you need to be on your toes all the time. Uh, but just when you used to get the China transparencies or the black and white nigs, and you looked in the light box or on the light box at these, and you mm. realised you got some great shots, nothing beat the thrill of that because you knew it was such a challenge and you knew that all the content you know there's going to be a big market for these uh, only in squash terms but mm-hmm. there's going to be a big market for these photographs the, good, the really good ones so you, yeah it was, a, it was a big thrill it really was and I've, as you say you're referring how did you know that the the images were going to be okay or not there's somebody came up to me I think a couple of years ago I was working at one of the tournaments and I was working with a digital camera now and you know you can review the images straight away on the back of the camera and then and then put them on the computer straight away you know exactly what you got and the guy said to me he said how do you know when you when you're using film how did you know that you'd actually got a decent image right. i said well that was a skill of the photographer you know you you knew that you had to get the lighting right you you didn't have immediate results you were taking a whole tournament at a particular setting, which from your experience in you know, the camera settings, that shutter speed and the aperture to get the right exposure on the film, but you don't know until you get those films back that it was right. And if it was wrong, you screwed up the whole tournament. And you might not know, outlets.
0: you might not know, if you're working a tournament, you're not going home and printing these out at night, right? No, no, you're so not. So you, no. you, you were just hoping that you had figured out yeah. all those dynamics, all the... That's that right. settings yeah. correctly yeah. and you wouldn't know to the end of the tournament no, you, so you got back to your coal bunker and like you're like oh, i've ruined the oh whole week oh my god
1: yeah oh no it was one time because when you're using color transparencies and the, the speed of the film was still pretty slow what you'd have to do is you you underexpose the film but then you overdevelop it to compensate for the underexposure hmm And uh, there was a British Open once where I took about 30 rolls of colour transparency film into my local lab, a professional lab, who had been brilliant before, every time I'd used them. But this particular time, they hadn't overdeveloped the films. and So I went in to pick up the the results, went back home, looked at them up to the light, and I thought, they're all dark. Mm. They're horrible dark, and they're horrible green. And I said, these are unusable. And this was a this is the British Open in I can't remember which year, mm. late probably late eighties, and I, well I did shed a few tears, did and uh, yeah well I shed shed <laughs> shed them with me as well because she knew you know I had a lot of outlets who were relying on these images and there's nothing that could be done. And you absolutely can't absolutely You, you couldn't redo
0: them. No, nope. we're, we're re, reprint them.
1: The only thing that they did is they tried to do duplicates, but it was it was no, it's hopeless. Once you've once you ruined a film, you ruined a film, really. And, and so you so were sad. using
0: somebody else, you weren't always printing on yourself. For, co-
1: for colour transparencies, that's so you've got two processes. Mm. For, for black and white, you've got two processes. You develop the neg, mm. and then you shine light through the neg onto a printing paper, and then you develop it in the developer's stop bath and fixer. So you've got actually a, a paper print. But for colour transparencies, it's like the negative if you like but it's a positive yeah and that's that's it you don't have to shine light through it at right. all so they're right. the original necks
0: they're the original yeah so um
1: so that was yeah.
0: a, that was that your worst that experience was, that as was a probably photographer. my
1: worst experience as well as the terms belt breaking on my battery when i was a wedding <laughs> photographer that was probably my worst ever experience yeah i was gutted the one time Absolutely.
0: where it, it went wrong it, yeah. yeah
1: it went wrong but it was outside every time you hand your film Although I develop my own black and white, so yeah. colour the chemistry is too complicated to do. So you, you uh, some people would do their own developing, but very, very few people would most photographers would give their colour work to a lab to develop the films. And you're in their hands, mm. totally in their hands. And some labs would mm. produce films. You think, hold oh, well, on, that looks a bit grainy compared to the other lab because they you know, yeah, they got right. It absolutely right. And grain, you know, there's the, the spots that make up the picture you know mm. the smaller they are the better the quality the better the quality of the image so grain is a fundamental part of uh, photography and if you've got large grain it's going to not produce a very good photograph by the time you blow it up so yeah it's photography is it is quite a it certainly was then quite a stressful operation oh, but nice. on the other hand you didn't have what you have now with digital, you know, as soon as you finish a match, you've got to be emailing photographs off after the end of every match and at the end of the day, you're emailing more. Um, you work,
0: you work for a couple hours after the end yeah, of the, uh, each yeah, night, right? That's right, after the end of every. No matter where election. you are, you it's yeah. a couple hours of work. Yeah. And, and then as we were just talking, like on Sunday, right. the end of the tournament, Saturday night, Sunday you're gonna be working yeah. more. Yeah. Obviously you don't keep all forty eight thousand, right? No. Oh yes I do. Oh you keep yeah. every photo? Keep every photo. Yeah. You never delete a photo. No, not now. I used to mm. with digital. But because storage is so cheap. You just keep it. You just keep it. But you have a lot of like bad photos that oh, you're certainly awful not like, oh, and terrible masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> all forty eight thousand. <000. laughs> No, they're obviously... But you're scrolling images, through... You're, yeah, you yeah. just
1: scroll through, pick out the best dozen from a match, yeah. and then put those in a separate uh, you know, best folder. And you tend to work from that. But you've always got the other to go images to. to go back to if necessary. And then at the end of every, every tournament, I go... When you I, get home... You... When I get home, I go through all 48,000 images, which takes a while to sort out. I mean, you're scanning through pretty quick, but it still takes a while to pick out the best images, best action shots of each player... Put them in files, a best folder again. You so must have so many
0: out. external hard drives? Yeah,
1: I've got about uh, 30 external hard drives. Oh <laughs> my God. So the, now they're four terabytes, you know, four terabyte Five terabytes. Five yeah, terabytes, yeah. That's
0: right. So. Do you um, print out any of your photographs anymore? Um, no no you don't no, go back no. to the coal bunker
1: no I don't no those days are
0: gone your parents don't even have the house anymore right they don't
1: know, they don't have the house no they moved uh, they moved um, in 2003 mm. but obviously by that time well I say by that time well, so
0: when did you do switch from, from film to digital
1: well I was just going to th- think that was about the time it was pure coincidence but uh, I moved to digital in 2004 so it's not actually that long ago we're only what 13 years on mm. now from that. And it seems like you know forever. I've always used digital, but uh, the, the 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 innovation <laughs> that photographers found that, that happened in the '90s. So in the '80s we were using this black and white negative and yep. color transparency. Right. So in the '90s, uh, what happened is that um, color negative film became more popular is better quality. Previously, it wasn't as good a quality, but then they produced a very good 800, which is quite. A 800 asa Mm. which is quite a fast speed at that time even though i'm now shooting at 5000 asa but uh, at the time 800 asa was like a godsend and you could slightly overdevelop the color negative film as well Mm. and um the printing process had changed insofar as they could print direct from color prints so there was no color requirement for color transparencies so then it all changed just supplying colour prints
0: you, you weren't doing any black and white no
1: I started off a combination of black and white and colour and then everything just changed to colour prints right um, up from the sort of late 90s right. early 2000s it was purely colour right. prints because magazines and newspapers started and magazines yeah. basically colour no one used black and white it was a yeah. thing of the past right because printing became far cheaper and the technology for doing it became right. far more commonplace so, that's right um so I was shooting Color Neg up to two thousand and three. Color uh, digital cameras were around in the early two thousands, but they weren't particularly good. Mm-hmm. But I got my first Canon digital camera in two thousand and four. Had was, you
0: debated for a couple of years about switching over? Well, there were
1: people who had switched before I had, and I said no. I, st- I still want to stick with the mm, with the Color Neg system. It's yeah. still the system still works. Yeah. You know, <clears> the <throat> focus on these new digital cameras was. Unreliable at best, and I was still sticking with manual focus lenses where other people were using autofocus mm. because I was just I, I, I always believe that there's no point in changing to another system unless it's 100% foolproof, mm. you know. And it certainly was not in the early 2000s 100% foolproof in digital, but then 2004 I thought, yeah, okay, they produced the Canon, produced the Mark II, uh, uh, 1D Mark II, and uh, it was a it was a reasonable camera, so I thought it was time to switch. So then I switched That's to- a massive change of your massive, life. Massive, massive change. So, so all the manual focus lenses and all the yeah, camera all, bodies- yeah, wh- Where are they? They're still in a cupboard back in my house. Yeah, are still they? there. Still there, I just can't bear to sort of throw them away. They're you just shouldn't. so much a part of my life. Right. T90s, which are the lovely camera to use, Canon T90. Mm-hmm. And all the old, small, they all look so small now, the old manual focus lenses, because they haven't got the motor in, built into them. Uh, but great lenses, great lenses produce great results, but, uh, yeah. but now they are history, because digital has superseded film. The quality is a zillion times better than film ever was, and you know, you're using grain-free images at 5,000 ASA, uh, which can be blown up to you know, wall size.
0: You know, so. Do you remember the first tournament you did in digital? The first <laughs> tournament. To,
1: oh, that's a good question. I think it would. It would be. I think I changed during the summer of 2004. Mm-hmm. So it would be September. So it in might Minnesota? have been. It might have been. Might have been the U.S. Open. It might have been the in 2000. Boston? Yeah, in Boston.
0: And and do you remember being nervous or? Yeah. When it, and
1: it's funny as well because I look back. And sometimes I still have to refer back to the, the hard drives which have the 2004 U.S. Open on. And I look at the number of images, and it, I took, like, during the <laughs> event, I took, like, 3,000 images. Right. And I'm thinking, hold on, I'm still shooting like it was film. Yeah. And now, you know, because you change, obviously, that, that increased rapidly in a very in a very short space of time, but I was still shooting. mental right. With the mentality of shooting, that's, yeah, that's 30, right. 30 30 a shot. Beer shop. <laughs> and then, because it's, you know, I've been doing it for, 20 years 20 years uh, over one 20 way. years one way and you can't just suddenly change your technique just like that overnight and i still wanted to just rather than rattle off every every shot which i thought might be usable i still wanted to concentrate on the things that i thought would be usable so i was waiting for the moment whereas now you're anticipating the moment and, and you're there before it happens whereas with film and early digital you're sort of you you're you can see it happening. You're doing it just there and then, but you're not doing all the shots before and after, which you are now, just in case it might work out. But now that's what you do do. You just
0: you, so, it. do you ever print out photos?
1: Um, I do occasionally. I've got some photographs back at home, you know, the pyramid photographs. Yeah. And well, the, but I
0: mean, not like we. you come home from a tournament, you probably won't print. No, no, nothing. And so, printed. you have all your old photographs. Yeah, still in filing cabinets. In, in filing cabinets, right? In the garage. Just, in the, in garage. the garage at home. Yeah, yeah. Negatives and... Still got and eggs, all, all the necks. All the thing. Never thrown anything away. Right. In 1982. And 1982. Um, so let's talk briefly um, um, man-to-man about long-suffering wives and squash mm. stuff. Mm. So your wife, um, mm. who I get to see on Skype once in a while. Yes, you do. Um, yes. Uh, do you tell, tell me what she feels about your keeping all these things, right? yeah. Does she complain that you uh, well, keep it are filling up the space. garage? Yeah. yeah, well,
1: if we didn't have a garage, it would be a problem. <laughs> There'd be a problem. If I had to uh, take another room in the house for storage, she might be saying, Steve, come on, are you ever going to be using these negs from 35 years ago? And I'll be saying, well, Jen, no, you're probably right. No, I can't throw them away. I can't throw them oh, no. away. I'd, I'd put them up in the attic, wouldn't I? I, I couldn't ever throw them off. No, you shouldn't. No. But, I
0: mean, does she complain that you're, you know, all this old camera equipment, you know? You no,
1: she's she's okay with it. She's okay, yeah. She she dusts around it occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> just a sort of a, you know, just a, just a, a thought, a passing thought. But, uh, no, she's okay with
0: it. She's I mean, okay. in those filing cabinets is an incredible history of the game, those first yeah. 20 years. Yeah of, um, you know, 20, uh, 22 years of, of you mm-hmm. know, the history of that game, mm-hmm. of the game in that era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And the, it's amazing. There yeah. should, there should be a, a blue, one of those blue historic uh, plaques on your, on your parents' <laughs> old... Uh, <laughs> yeah. on yeah. Steve Lyon printed photographs yeah, in so the right. back. Yeah, in the back.
1: I should go around because obviously my parents moved away and is was right. bought by somebody else. So I should actually... Ask whether the new owners, because uh, I do occasionally drive past the house because it's not that far away from where we live now, and just say, Have they, say, torn, down have the they torn what's happened to the coal bunker? <laughs> and do you know Can if I, it is still there, yeah. what happened in there for about, I used it for about two years. Two years, and then I moved, then I built my own dark, I bought a house, used, uh, I was still single then, mm. and then um, used one of the spare rooms as a, as a dark room, mm-hmm. and then I had an office. Oh, you did later on. I had wow. an office in the centre of town in in Worthing, mm-hmm. uh, on the second floor, and I had a, a dark room at the in front, and dark room at the back. Yeah.
0: So you didn't, you never, you and Jenny, like you didn't have a dark room at your house. We never you were had married. a dark
1: room at the house. No, no, no. So it's always, which is always a good thing because you'd never want to be mixing business and uh, home life. Although, <laughs> I say that now. Obviously, I've got my office now in the digital offices in at home because yeah. Uh, yeah. I always thought it was a risk of mixing yeah. business and home life. Yeah. And you wanted to get home from the office and, and just not. sort of switch off. That's right. But I'm I am i am pretty good at, you know, and and you know, Jenny is pretty accommodating as well know that, you know, sometimes I might be getting a call at midnight from, you know, can you email a photograph we need it urgently and, you know, that's life, and she recognises that you know mm. there are different time zones in the world where people I used to supply. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's the way it is. You know, yeah. photographer's wife. There was compensation for Jenny, as insofar as she did occasionally go to tournaments. You know, so she has been to a number of tournaments in in uh, Cairo yeah. and Boston and New York, which she loves. Yeah. Know, yeah. yeah, and she will continue hopefully to come out as well to tournaments. You know,
0: well, you travel. I mean, you've always been travelling ever since yeah. you know those tournaments jumped up in Europe I mean yes. you, you you travel you know I don't know how many miles a year but you're going to you know a dozen events mm-hmm. right that's all, right all around the world that's right I mean you're away a lot yeah well I used
1: to, um, probably between 75 and 90 days a year I'm away right uh, something like that so it's it's yeah so what do you think? so a quarter of the year I'm away so yeah it's quite a lot it's quite a lot, hmm. it's quite a lot and sometimes it might you know, might this year be a little bit more. depending mm. you know, on a number of tournaments I've got to cover. Do you have so a
0: system with like, you know, the airport you always park in the same spot? And well, you Jen's know,
1: really good. Um, you she know, drive she will, you to Gatwick or drop Heathrow? me off at the airport as long as I buy a breakfast at shows at <laughs> <laughs> Heathrow Terminal 5, uh, that's a compensation. And so, she'll um, pick you up. And she'll pick me up, That's you know, really most of the time, unless it's ridiculously early, yeah. so we'll get a taxi.
0: So how far? From, how far it. from the airport are you?
1: Uh, well, from Gatwick, we're about uh, thirty miles, which is not, not too bad. bad. Yeah. But most of the flights are out, out of, of Heath Heathrow, Road. which is about sixty miles away. Yeah. So yeah. it's a it's bit of a drag. Bad. You've got to go around a motorway to get there. So it's uh, the the motorway. The M25. Traffic. Yeah, yeah. The M25. Right. The world's biggest car park. In the
0: <laughs> <laughs> Outside the glass, we'd like to thank SquashProShop.com for their support. And for Grant Irving, who's our executive producer and always does a great job. Uh, Next month, we'll have a very exciting podcast uh, where we have an exclusive interview with a uh, legendary player, world champion. So that'll um, certainly be interesting. Uh, Thanks so much.